This is Matt Freitas, and you're listening to the Late Night History Podcast. Tonight's guest is with retired Lieutenant Commander R.J. Thomas. R.J. served a 30-year career in Naval Special Warfare. He is most well-known as a Navy Cross recipient of the Vietnam War. At the time, he was the best shot in the entire Navy. His skills were tested after his helicopter was shot down, and he had to defend the crash site with only an M1911 handgun. RJ tells this story in detail, which, if it ever gets reviewed, it is my belief he will receive an upgrade to the Medal of Honor. Additionally, as we do on this show, we also dive deep into the history of naval special warfare through RJ's eyes. We discussed his tours with UDT-22 using the SDVs. We also talk about his experiences with SEAL Team 2 in Vietnam, and later, his career as an officer, which included an exchange program with the Australian SAS. Beyond his deployments, RJ made it his goal to teach SEALs to become better marksmen. He is also a competitive shooter and was instrumental in the development of the SEAL sniper courses, as well as 50 caliber sniper rifles, 300 wind mags, and other SEAL team specific gear. So without further ado, it is my honor to welcome RJ Thomas on episode 26 of the Late Night History Podcast. guess, can you start with your name, your age, and how many uh, total years you spent in the SEAL teams? All right. Uh, my name is Robert J. Thomas. Uh, I'm 77 years old, and I spent 32 years in the Navy, 30 of which were in the SEAL team. And going back to your childhood, um, can you talk about growing up in California and uh just your experience during that? Okay. Well, I grew, I grew up on a, a cattle and farming operation in Central California in uh, Santa Barbara County. Um, the little canyon where our homestead ranch was was called Tepesque Canyon, and it was situated on the edge of the Los Padres Wilderness area. And during that time... Uh like all your free time you spent hunting uh what type of animals were you hunting well i hunted everything uh primarily your first hunting experiences as a kid are generally uh directed toward varmints we had fruit and, and uh, nut trees and orchards and uh the first assignment with a gun that i uh, was exposed to was shooting, shooting predatory birds and, and blue jays and hawks after the chickens and, uh, things like that. And, uh, we also had uh, Colombian ground squirrels that were, uh, uh, destructive to uh, our grain crops. So, uh, we were always killing those, uh, 
little Colombian ground squirrels just to keep them from eating the cattle feed. Uh, later on, as I as I got older and could get a deer license, uh, we hunted uh, coast Pacific coastal blacktail deer. Uh, lions were uh, a, not considered a game animal at that point, so uh, the lions were a threat to our cattle calving operation. So we shot lions and coyotes, and uh, and then we had occasional bears that uh, came into our ranch and the destructive kind of uh, foraging in the on the ranch so those were all uh you know hunting uh slash uh uh damage control sorts of of uh, shooting i did did you hunt um like anything that you ate oh yeah we ate ate the deer and we also shot birds we shot uh um in, in the appropriate seasons we shot uh doves and quail and uh and we also shot bantail pigeons and uh, uh occasionally we would get a wild turkey at what age did you start hunting uh, actually, physically shooting animals, I started about 10 years old. And then uh, big game hunting, such as deer, I started when I was 12. I killed my first deer when I was 12 years old. And uh, were you, like, always good with a rifle? Uh, it was kind of family tradition. We were all hunters and shooters, so... You kind of uh, learned that you know you learned the skills uh, to you know there was in, at that point in our life we were given limited amounts of ammunition so you were you know you were not uh, allowed to waste ammunition you had to hit something every time you shot so we developed marksmanship skills based on that but uh, I uh, I really didn't start competitive shooting. And marksmanship till I was in high school, uh, and uh, I started shooting uh, small bore uh, twenty-two rifle matches and uh, high-power rifle matches with centerfire rifles. Did your high school have like a varsity team with shooting? No, no, no. It was uh, it was it was a local gun organization. I went to a very small high school, and uh, the local shooters and gun clubs put, put together rifle matches and and conducted rifle matches for the kids and for the adults. So it wasn't organized uh, high school rifle shooting. And did you, did uh, you have like a family history of military service? Uh, I had uh, an uncle that was in the Navy and uh, that was pretty much it. We, uh, my own father was uh, exempted because he was a farmer in World War Two, and then uh, uh, some of my other uncles had uh, physical dis uh, disabilities that prevented them from being. So I had one uncle that was uh, a, a aerial gunner in uh, 
in the Navy in World War II. And when you were thinking about joining the military, why did you pick uh, the Navy? Well, I, I basically uh, thought that that uh, the most attractive uh, military forces were were the, the Navy and the Marine Corps uh, because they had the best guns and the best shooters. And uh, I also wanted to be a, a, a frog, Navy frogman, so that was the only... Uh, methodology that I could pursue that would allow me to, to be a Navy frogman was to join the Navy. So that's what I did. And I understand that you saw um, like a certain movie that you learned about the frogman. Is that right? Uh, there, were, there were several uh, movies, uh, you know, Naked Warrior style movies that, uh, that were Navy frogmen, but I had, I had heard about those about Navy frogmen before. I, you know, read about them in books and and uh, had been exposed to the underwater demolition team ethos and uh, what what they were, uh, you know, all about there. As far as uh, there was no SEAL team then, but uh, you know, I converted on into that into the SEAL team once I got into the UDT teams. And you joined the Navy at 17 in 1963. Can you talk about... Uh, uh, 60, 64. Oh, sorry about that. Can you discuss uh, joining the Navy? Like what that experience well, was like? At the uh, at the point I joined the Navy, you could not... Uh, you could not go straight to the UDT teams and, and the UDT training you were required to go to the fleet uh, and then volunteer from the fleet to go to UDT training and take the screening test. So I went, I went to the fleet and uh, I was aboard a guided missile frigate, uh, Josephus Daniels. And uh, then I uh, uh, put in my papers to take the UDT screening test in Little Creek, Virginia, took that, uh, took that test there and uh, before I could go to UDT training my ship took me down to Guantanamo Bay for six months upon completion of that uh, trip to the Caribbean uh, uh, we came back to Norfolk and I went to UDT training in uh, 1966 when you were on that ship um, did you have the opportunity to like physically train for UDT selection or did you just, I did, I did. I, you know, I'd, I'd run and, uh, do, do as much running as I could on the ship. And, uh, I also, uh, we went out and, and, and tried out, uh, for the ship's pistol and rifle team. And, uh, uh, when we were at Guantanamo Bay and I, I was the, uh, top shooter on the ship, so they made me captain of the pistol team on the ship. So uh, I was a third-class petty officer, and I was had some officers and other enlisted, senior enlisted guys that were on the team, but I was the captain. So, what uh, what was the what type of pistol was it? Nineteen eleven. Okay. Actually, actually, nineteen eleven A ones, but uh, the ship had an allowance of what they called match grade B adjustable sight pistols that uh, were given to 
all of the ships to have a pistol team. The, uh, the rifles aboard the ship at that time were M1 Garands that had been had been converted to 308 from uh, 30 government out six to uh, 308. So that was the Navy's issue rifle at that time was a 308 M1 Garand and uh, that's when the Marine Corps and the Army had M14s but the Navy still had Garands. That's super cool. Um, what was the range that you would have to shoot uh, targets at? Uh, standard NRA bullseye outdoor courses you shoot uh, rapid fire, time fire and slow fire uh, uh, on a 50, 50 yard range and shoot the uh, timed and rapid fire at 25 yards and the slow fire at 50 yards. Uh, it's a 30 shot match, 300 possible points. And what would you, uh, do you remember what scores you would hit? I was uh, a high 90s shooter, uh, uh, probably uh, uh, in the 280s out of a possible 300 uh, in in the on what they call the Navy course, which was, like I said, 25 and 50 yards. And what what else did you do when you were at uh, Guantanamo Bay? Uh, I was uh, great diving out there. We uh, did a lot of free diving out there. Shot a lot of fish. Saw a lot of sharks. When we were out there swimming around. So, so uh, good training to, before you uh, went to the UDTR. Yeah, yeah, correct. I mean, it was uh, you know I was. Like I said, I was running as much as I could and then doing a lot of swimming, too, to prepare myself for training. And you go to UDTR, which uh, I think which we spoke on the phone another time. You said it was underwater demolition training replacement. Right. Underwater demolition team replacement. Okay. It was UDT slash R, which stood for underwater demolition team replacement training and that was class 38 in little creek virginia yeah i actually actually i went through class 38 and 39 because i got my eardrum broken while i was in 38 i couldn't go down to uh uh open water swim school in roosevelt roads puerto rico so i uh i went and repeated the class with uh class 6701 which was uh the first class in the year 1967 it would have been class 39 on the old uh uh designation system but uh i was considered um class 38 because i went through hell week with 38 and i went through it again with 39 so (laughs) I, I got to have a winter class and a summer class. So. How was the winter class in Virginia? It was terrible. <laughs> uh, it was uh, uh, part of the uh, training required you to do during Hell Week, required you to paddle a rubber boat through the inland waterways, and the whole inland waterway was frozen. 
So you had to not only paddle the boat, but break ice to get, get your boat through. And uh, if you got wet, you instantly, uh, your uniform, which was just plain old cotton uh, fatigues, uh, would freeze on you. So it was pretty miserable. And was training um, similar to it is today, like there's three phases? Uh, similar, but a lot less restrictions on on what they could do both mentally and physically to uh, the trainees. Could you elaborate by that? Well, it was just a different, it was a different world then, and uh, there was probably uh, uh, no restrictions short of, uh, of uh, actually physically beating you that uh, that they couldn't do to you to try to get you to quit so uh, that that's all been uh, politicized now and and there's a whole different set of rules that that relegate training to uh, a much lesser uh, uh, confrontational sort of thing um, my particular nemesis in training, in the winter class was the cold. I lost, I got frostbite on all my toes, lost all my toenails, turned black, and toenails fell off. And, and uh, you know, I was, uh, I was constantly cold. I was, I was a California boy, so I was not used to East Coast winters. And uh, uh, they were, uh, they were particularly hard on me from a, a psychological standpoint because I'd never been in that kind of cold before. So, um, do you remember some of your instructors? I remember them all. Were they um, any like Korean War vets or World there War Two vets? There were. Uh, there was uh, uh, a couple of guys. One had been. Uh, uh, shot. Uh, he was uh, he was our, actually our swimming instructor. He'd been shot in the leg in Korea. Uh, another one, uh, uh, hospital corpsman, had been uh, pinned to a tree with a bayonet, and uh, another guy got the uh, communists off him and saved his life, but he survived being, uh, had a bayonet stuck through him and pinned to a tree. So, uh-huh. there, and there, there were, there were some older guys that were associated with training then who actually were in, in the uh, Pacific islands during beach landings that, uh, uh, you know, they just kind of showed up and told us stories about, World War Two, so uh, they weren't official instructors. So they were just retired frogmen. And uh, when you were doing like weapons training, or did you do weapons training when you were at that uh, in UDT? Yeah, UDT training. Yeah, of course. And what type uh, of weapons? Uh, well, I mean, we, like I said, you know, the official, uh, the uh, official weapon. Uh, the Navy long gun was a M1 Grand still, but they didn't pay much attention to that. They were uh, 
they were focused on uh, 45s, uh, M3 grease gun. Um, they had some uh, Thompson machine guns. Uh, they had, uh, um, you know, pretty standard issue sort of fleet type weapons. Uh, they they did not get into any of the exotic seal weapons, which came later, like the Stoner and and the nine millimeter model 39 Smith and Wesson. Um, what'd you do for like demolitions? What did I, what, what type of training did you do with, uh, demolitions? Okay. Well, they, uh, they trained us with, uh, uh, quarter pound blocks of TNT. And, uh, we, uh, also did training with, uh, C4 and C3, uh, where we learned how to do uh, specific charges like how to breach a wall or breach a breach a door or anything like that. But general, your generally speaking, your your uh, uh, typical explosive was just a a TNT block, and you learned how to electrically and non-electrically fire those uh those explosives and then once you started doing water shots going out and putting uh uh explosives on on uh on obstacles or coral then we went to c4 and mark 8 hose uh that was uh you know a rubber hose with uh explosives inside the hose and um did you have like wetsuits and like a dive mask and kind of like like the uh korean war and world war ii veterans like that we had we had we had wetsuits that were basically u.s divers wetsuits and we had dry suits which are uh uh lighter uh latex suit that was watertight and you wore uh wool long johns underneath them so that was for cold water use uh is there anything i haven't asked you about udtr that you want to cover uh well uh i think my class started out class 38 started out with uh um about 100 people or 110 people and i think we graduated 32 which was about the going rate for for classes at that time they had about a 15 percent or less graduation rate like when the seals graduate from buds they get like the trident did the udt guys get anything no we there there was no trident when i went through training there was there was only you got your uh, navy jump wings when you got 10, 10 jumps and then uh, uh, sometime in the uh, in the later sixties uh, we got uh, the seal trident and the uh, and uh, they had a initially a, a regular UDT which was similar to the Trident, except it had a pistol and an eagle, but no pitchfork like the SEAL Trident. 
And then when you got to the SEAL team, you got a, a emblem with a trident on it. So, but that that was all after uh, after the sixties. That started happening in the seventies. And um, when you graduated, why did um, like did some guys go to the SEAL teams and then some guys went to UDT? Nope, you had to go to the UDT teams for a year and do a cruise. And then you could volunteer for the SEAL team, which I did do. Uh, and uh, uh, the, if nobody protested you coming to the SEAL team based on how you had been in the UDT teams, they would they would allow you to come over to the SEAL team. I went from UDT 22 to SEAL team 2. And when you are with uh, UDT 22, um... Like, what was UDT doing prior to Vietnam? Uh, their, their mission was the same, uh, beach, rec- beach reconnaissance and uh, hydrographic reconnaissance and uh, beach landing. Uh, there was there was also uh, up to the what they called the high water mark on shore was the responsibility of the UDT teams and then the SEAL teams had from the high water mark as far inland as you wanted to you needed to go that was what defined the mission statement between the udts and the seal team of course that all went away when the udt teams all became seal teams and um when you were at udt 22 um did you say you went on a tour with that with them did i what go on a tour with udt I did. I made a cruise to the Med on the LSD-1, the USS Ashland, and uh, I was uh, I was in charge of what they called the SDV, Swimmer Delivery Vehicle, which was a, a open-hole fiberglass battery-powered uh, underwater craft that we delivered. We could deliver swimmers in that over a longer range so that you could take your your attack swimmers in in an stv and then they'd go off of boat air and go on to an emerson rig uh, oxygen rebreathing recirculating rig and go do their ship attacks and put on their limpet mines which was also a udt uh, uh, udt uh, mission was ship attacks And, uh, is there anything that, do you, when you were at UDT, were you still doing the competitive shooting? I was given, given the opportunity, uh, I shot with the Italians competitively when we were in La Spezia, uh, but, uh, I wasn't doing any official uh, military shooting representing the Navy. I was just kind of on my own. I had a interesting parachuting thing on that UDT cruise. I had my five jumps, which gets you silver jump wings, uh, out of Fort Benning. And so I wanted to get my five more jumps, uh, to get my Navy gold jump wings. Uh, we were, uh, flying out of, uh, Naples, Italy, over uh, Salerno, 
where the drop zone was and uh, we were preparing to do a jump and I had a young lady who was coming out to watch us do a parachute jump. So I was supposed to be the lead jumper on the aircraft and uh, we got out to Salerno to, to jump and the wind picked up so they said, well, we need a more experienced jumper to make the first uh, leg of the jump. So the uh, chief of our platoon uh, went ahead and uh, took the first stick, what they call a stick. It was a it was a six man stick, and uh, he led the first stick out, and we circled the drop zone, and I was going to lead the second stick out. And uh, I got up to the door to to jump out. I some motion caught my eye, and I I looked back and saw uh, the chief hanging on the tail of the airplane with his parachute open, and uh, he's he is unconscious behind the plane. And uh, so uh, he had gone out. His parachute had snagged on the tail, and then the five guys going out had all hit him and knocked him out. So we were in a bit of a quandary, uh, tried to shake him off, couldn't shake him off. So we were going to fly back to uh, Naples and land with him behind the plane. And uh, fortunately for him, he regained consciousness and uh, pulled recognized his situation, pulled his cape wells, which released his main chute and dropped with his uh, reserve parachute and uh, opened a little low and went through a farmhouse roof and broke a bunch of bones, but survived it. But uh, it had a lasting impression on me about parachuting. So uh, I was always, I was always very reserved about parachuting and only did the number of jumps required. So I can uh, imagine that sounds like, (laughs) like horrible (laughs) well it was kind of a legendary thing you know Uh, the chief's name was Cahill Eugene Cahill and he did kind of lectures up and down the east coast talking about how he got hung behind a plane and uh, survived it that's wild and you said you were in Italy what other countries did you visit oh we did a lot of work off of Spain doing cartographic uh, uh, surveys of the beaches there. Uh, we did uh, work with the clearance diver units out of Malta. Uh, did work with uh, the Italian frogmen, which are which are called the Incasore, and we also worked with the uh, French frogmen, which were called the Combat de Nageur. So. We were all kind of uh, in this kind of line of work and kind of exchanging ideas on how best to do it. The Italians were actually the the guys who invented the little swimmer vehicles, and uh, they actually sunk some British ships with those vehicles during uh, World War II. That's amazing. And when you were in... Um... When you were training with those guys, did you share any like meals or you have any interesting uh, food experiences while you were over there? Yeah, we uh, we had a big barbecue once on the beach with uh, 
with the uh, British CDUs out of Malta, the clearance diver unit guys, and we went out and we got uh, some kind of lobster, which uh, uh, was uh, actually a, a smaller uh, uh, lobster than a langusta, but it's very similar. And we cooked those on the beach and, uh, you know, boiled them in a pot and then uh, uh, dipped them in butter and ate them on the beach. Pretty good food. Pretty unique experience. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then is there anything from uh, UDT that you want to share that we haven't uh, covered? No, I, uh, uh, the, the, the early stages of uh, swimmer delivery vehicles, of course, continued to evolve. And now there is a, there are two SEAL teams uh, dedicated to the swimmer delivery vehicles. Of course, they're much more sophisticated boats with lots of capability that we didn't have. But uh, uh, the program still exists. When you were there, did uh, were they... Um like working with the submarines as well? Uh, you mean doing lock-in, lock-outs? Yeah. Yeah, the UDT teams were doing that. Uh, we had uh, uh, a boat in uh, uh, St. Uh, well, it, 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 worked. it worked from uh, the Caribbean Islands, from St. Thomas all the way back to uh, Key West. And uh, uh, I went on some missions on that boat to South America, which I can't divulge uh, any more than that. That was the SEAL team, not the UDT teams. Were you ever in those little uh, mini-subs? The STVs? Yeah. Yeah, I was during that whole uh, Mediterranean first cruise. I was in them all the time. What do you like think about when you're underwater for that long? Are you just focus on the mission? Well, you know, it's uh, you're you're underwater and it's dark. You always work at night, so you're pretty well focused on the instrumentation to make sure you're staying on course and and covering the number of yards that you need to cover to get to your target. So you don't, you don't have much time to sit around and think about anything. You're focused on what you're doing. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's uh. are you like, um, like a bigger guy? Cause I know, uh, Kirby Harrell did a, did a STV stuff as well. And he's not a very tall guy. So I wondered, uh, from, at that point in time, I was six foot one and weighed about, 195 to 200 depending on how hard i was working okay um and then eventually you uh go to seal team can you talk about going from udt to seal team right i i went to uh uh seal team in 68 uh got uh got my first platoon to vietnam in early 69 and uh that uh that was my first cruise with the seal team my uh platoon commander was uh ron yaw 
seal the 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 seal team two at that time was was Edward Lyons and uh, uh, we did our we did our cruise over there to uh, Delta and uh, we were stationed at, uh, at a place called uh, Canco and uh, Mintui. Uh, we did operations out of there, one of which was to try to rid uh, 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 there was a uh, a basically a Viet Cong bandit who was raiding out of Cambodia and uh, raiding a little village called Hatien and they would come in and take women, take teenage boys, you know and if anybody resisted they would mortar the town so uh, we we were sent there to eliminate him, and uh, I was down there in March of '69 when uh, uh, we got a call from one of the helos supporting us that uh, the bad guys were out on the mountain, and so I was trying to set up a sniper op on them, and and we I jumped on the plane and they came back to refuel and re replenish ammo and uh, flew out with them back to the mountain and uh, they promptly shot us down with a 51 caliber machine gun and then once we were on the ground they tried to capture us so that uh, that ended poorly for us uh, in that uh, we got shot down but we got out of that with uh, uh, lost two guys in the crash and then we got uh, two guys out two helo guys out and myself out and then uh, uh another guy from the second helo in the in the two man two helo operation uh came down to help me and we were on the ground and well they were trying to capture us for about 45 minutes and uh the only thing we had that would shoot were 45s and uh so the the uh, gunfight ensued. They were shooting. They had long guns, AKs and and uh, SKSs, and they were shooting at us, and we were shooting back with a forty-five. And they uh, they would shoot at us from behind a dike, and then uh, they'd stick their heads up and see if they hit us, and then I'd try to shoot them in the head. Succeeded some of the time, and kept them off us for about 40 or 45 minutes until an army helo that heard our mayday came down and picked us up. So, uh, uh, I won and they didn't. So, uh, the helicopter that you were in and, uh, helicopters that supported you were called sea wolves. Can you talk about them a little bit? The helo that, that came and got us was not a sea wolf. It was an army slick. The helicopter I was flying in when we got shot down was the Navy Seawolf. And it was piloted by uh, Commander Dick Barr. So, and the uh, Seawolves uh, were like gunship support exclusively for the SEALs, right? They weren't exclusively for the SEALs, but they were exclusively for the Navy. They were, uh, they were arm, old Army 
helicopters that had been rebuilt and gunned up with M60 and 50 caliber machine guns. And then uh, the army was going to Cobras for the gunships. So the the army uh, Huey was actually a uh, uh, kind of an all-purpose helo that they used for various passengers and and uh, administrative things. And they were typically they had one M60 on an army army Huey, and that's the word that came after us was one of those birds that had a one single M60 on it. My uh, Sea Wolf that I was on had both a 50 and a 60 on it, on door guns. And uh, what weapon did you carry when you were on the helicopter? I had a Stoner 63A, was my my main weapon that I carried. And uh, I also had a Model 39 Smith, Smith & Wesson, a 9mm pistol which was the Navy SEAL team was the only uh, military organization that got either the Model 39 Smith or the Stoner 63A machine gun. And uh, they were kind of high tech at the time. And uh, so the rest of the, the rest of the military was the Marine Corps and the Army were shooting M14s and 45s, 1911A1s. But, uh, that's that's the weapons I carried. However, the stoner was destroyed in the crash, and my Model 39 got ripped off in the crash when I got thrown out of the helicopter onto the ground. So uh, I went back, and the uh, pilot was hanging in his uh, seat uh, unconscious. I dropped his seatbelt and got him out on the ground, and, and he fortunately had a... Uh, uh, 1911 in a shoulder holster and about 50 rounds of ammo. He had three loaded magazines and then, and then uh, a, a remainder of 50 rounds in cartridge loops. So that's what that's the only gun we had on the ground to protect us. The guy who jumped out of the other helo to help us only brought his uh, 45 with him. So we had two 45s on the ground fighting with guys with long guns and what were your when the helicopter got shot and you were thrown from the uh thrown from the helicopter what were your injuries what were my injuries yeah were you like hit by enemy gunfire or like did you break I any was, bones i was I, I was hit by bullets that came through the helo before we crashed and uh I presume they were 50 caliber or 51 caliber uh, projectiles, but I had a I had a piece of bullet stuck uh, in in my in my ribs uh, over my lungs, and another piece of bullet lodged over my kidney, and and then several little fragmentary wounds on my arms and uh, legs. When I went out of the helo, something hit me in the face and cut my nose loose from my face. So I had a uh, uh, a large cut from over my eyebrow down around my nose, and uh, I was basically flopping free on my face. 
you defended your position. I'm trying to see uh, what else in my notes. Well, I, I, uh, once I got, uh, Lieutenant Barr out on the ground, uh, I could see that, uh, they were coming down off the mountain and, uh, gonna approach us and try to capture us. So I, uh, I got his 45 out of his shoulder holster and, once they got within about a hundred yards, I started shooting at them. So they took cover behind a dike, and they would they would stick their guns up over the dike and shoot at us, and then they would stick their heads up to see if they got us. And when they'd stick their head up to look, I'd shoot at them. And uh, uh, more than occasionally, I would hear a bump and head would disappear. And when the Army helicopter came in to pick you up, uh, did any of the uh, North Vietnamese, like, charge the aircraft? They did. They did. As I was shoving uh, Lieutenant Barr into the aircraft, they charged up over the dike, and uh, they ran right at the nose of the helicopter, which, of course, there's no guns out the front of the helicopter. They could only shoot out the side. So as I shoved Barr in on the, on the deck... And uh, the other guy was dragging the, another wounded gunner back to the helo. They charged us, and uh, I, as I shoved Barr into the helicopter, I kind of fell on the ground. And uh, I could see this guy running toward the helicopter, uh, directly at the nose of the helicopter. So I just shot shot at him from between the skids and I hit him out about 10 yards in front of the helicopter and stopped that charge. And there were a couple other guys trying to flank us, but the pilot shot them. So uh, I think he shot them with a M3 grease gun. And then you got on, did, did you get on the helicopter yourself? Did somebody help you in? No, I got on by myself. And uh, once we started to take off, I, uh, I got on a M60 machine gun, which... Now I had the uh, people behind the dike were exposed, so I started picking those guys off with the M60 machine gun, and, and uh, I would have uh, preferred to stay there and clean them all up, but the uh, helicopter pilots wanted to get out of there. They'd been hit uh, multiple times with small arms fire. They got hit over 20 times with a 51 caliber, and they got hit over a hundred times with small arms, 30 caliber rounds. So they were concerned that the helicopter was going to quit flying any moment. So they didn't want to stick around to do any more battle. How many Americans were on the ground, and how many uh, do you do you think uh, North Vietnamese were on the ground during that battle? Well, there was between uh, 12 and 20 uh, NVA that came down and tried to flank us. They split into two groups, probably 10 or 12 of them were coming directly at me. And then about the same number, eight or 10 flanked us and tried to come in from a different angle. Uh, the, the second gunner who jumped out of the helicopter to help me he was fending the guys that tried to flank us off and and the guys that charged the helicopter at the end were uh, uh, 
the initial guys that were shooting at us while we were at the crash site. So uh, there was probably between eight and 12, you know, it's hard to say because once I got up in the air and saw them, there was several of them laying on the ground, whether they were alive or, or not, I don't know, but I, w- I would estimate there were eight or eight or 10, maybe 12 guys down on the ground there where I was shooting at them with a 60. So that's, that's how many bad guys there were. And the good guys, there was, uh, there was four of us and, uh, there was Barr and Abbott and then, uh, that's the pilot and, uh, and, uh, Gunner and off our helicopter, then me, and then, uh, a petty officer named Reardon came off the, the second helo and was helping me out. So, and there was, uh, I believe there was a crew of five on <clears throat> the army helicopter that came and rescued us. How long did it take before you guys um, reached uh, your base? How long did it take before we did what? Before you uh, reached your base so you could get, like, medical attention? Oh, uh, I, I think it took us about a half an hour to get from where we were in Hatien to the 29th Medevac in Canto. And when you were on the helicopter, were you still uh, engaged engaged in like a gunfight, or were you kind of addressing your own medical stuff? No, once once we flew out of the area where where, where the gunfight was, we pretty much just laid back, and I was leaking a lot of blood, so uh, I actually was almost unconscious by the time we got to the 29th medevac. And then you get to the medevac, and uh, you get like—I assume you get like rushed into like a hospital. Yeah, there was a there was a uh, medical evacuation hospital there at Canto, which is called the 29th Medevac. And how long did you um, like? Did you have a bunch of surgeries, or what was your? Yeah, they wired my nose back onto my face with stainless wire and uh, patched up, uh, they didn't dig the bullet out that was on my ribs. And they they got most of the bullet out that was over my kidneys. But uh, pretty much just got the bleeding stopped and, uh, and I was there about four or five days and then they flew me to Yakuska, to the Naval Hospital in Yakuska, Japan. And while you were in Japan, um, how was your recovery? How was I recovering? Yeah, like, did you do any physical therapy? Yeah, yeah, I, I had a lot of physical therapy and uh, uh, also, uh, you know, some minor surgeries that uh, they were just closing up stuff that, you know, that was slow healing. And took all the took all the wire out of me. <clears throat> and I understand that you were recommended for uh, the Medal of Honor. Is that right? The pilot who recovered us, <clears throat> guy named Ken Graham, 
uh, he uh, he wrote up wrote me up for the Medal of Honor and submitted it to the Army Air Chain of Command. The Army Air Chain of Command deferred on it and said uh, that I was Navy and that if the Navy wanted to give me a Medal of Honor, they could do it because the politics involved, you know, the the Army was not interested in in supporting the Navy from a medal standpoint. So uh, that that was forwarded to uh, the Navy chain of command in uh, Vietnam. And uh, where it went after that, nobody knows, but it ended up being written up as a Navy cross. So you got the Navy cross, but I also understand that uh, you went back to Vietnam to finish I your did. tour? I did, not before I got the Navy cross, though. So. I, uh, as soon as I got out of the hospital, I flew, they flew me all the way back to Little Creek, Virginia. I was in Little Creek, Virginia for two days. I got on a C-130 and flew hops all the way back to Vietnam and then finished out the, finished out the deployment with my platoon then stayed for an extra month and turned over with the next platoon. Were you doing, uh, like more missions? Yes. What types of missions were you doing? Like similar helicopter well, stuff? Well, we were we we were we were basically uh, hunting high uh, high level uh, what they call VCI uh, VC uh, infrastructure people, tax collectors, and organizers and stuff like that. And uh, you know, we we got several of those guys. They would move them around on the on the water at night, and that's that's where we set up our ambushes to. Uh, um, to take these guys out and on on one particular mission we got a guy who was a Russian uh, he was down there teaching how to shoot 122 rockets 122 millimeter rockets to uh, uh, set them up on uh, ramps to uh, to hit various places uh, you know with uh, he had a whole lesson plan with him and had a little uh, book written by Lennon, like a New Testament. And uh, he had a great red Soviet flag with a, a gold hammer and sickle on it, which the platoon kept and uh, put our names on it. And uh, so that was the kind of thing we did. And uh, uh, For those types of missions, how many SEALs would go, like... How many seals would be on a patrol, and what was um? You would carry like a stoner. How much ammunition? How many grenades? <clears throat> I uh, I had a jaundiced opinion of grenades, so uh, more guys got hurt. We hurt our own guys with grenades because when you throw a grenade in the dark, you don't know where it's going to go, and sometimes they bounce back. So uh, you know, very few of us carried grenades. But I carried a I carried a Stoner 63A and the Model 39, and uh, uh, but when I came back the second time after losing the Stoner, I mean losing the original Stoner and the 39 Smith, I uh, I got a uh, surplus 45 that was issued to us 
for supporting our Vietnamese troops. They didn't want to have anything to do with the Vietnamese. They're kind of little guys, and they did not want to have anything to do with the 1911. So anyway, I had a brand new 1911 that I used for the second part of my tour, and uh, I got a new stoner issued, and I carried 700 rounds for the stoner, 100, 100 in the drum, and uh, 600 bandoliered around my shoulders. Did you wear um, blue jeans in Vietnam? I did not. Uh, that was kind of a West Coast thing. I was an East Coast guy. But uh, the, the camis that we wore, I, I had uh, I had actual camouflage pattern uh, camis, and I also had Vietnamese tiger stripe camis that I wore. What were your thoughts on the tiger stripe camis? What what about it? What do you think of the tiger stripe camis? <clears throat> they were just what was available. I mean, I didn't think anything good, bad, or different about them. They were a little bit heavy. Uh, the the uh, what we call jungle greens, <clears throat> which were non camouflage green kind of BDUs. Uh, were the, actually the most comfortable thing to wear. Uh, we didn't wear socks with our with our jungle boots because socks just get wet and rub on your feet. So we were wearing uh, jungle boots with no socks, just a little fiberglass insert in the thing to keep your feet from getting raw on the bottom. Did you wear a hat? I did. I had a kind of a wide rim booty hat. You're sitting on ambush and particularly during monsoon and uh, if you didn't have a wide enough brim on your hat, the water would run down inside your poncho. So I wore a, a big hat that would drain the water off over my poncho and, and stay relatively dry under your poncho. Uh, what uh, Did you work with any... Um friendly vietnamese like they could go on patrol with you yeah we had we had what were called ld in and ends which were vietnamese seals and we always had a couple of those guys with us on a, on a platoon op and uh, uh we also had a vietnamese interpreter uh that accompanied us who was not a combatant he was he was just there to help us interrogate prisoners and do stuff like that. Did you ever work with any of the, um, like the boat teams? The A teams? The boat teams. Like the, uh, the special boat teams, but. Oh yeah. Well, they inserted us. We had a, we had a, uh, they inserted us and extracted us and we had a specialized boat that we used with those guys called an LSSC, which stands for a light seal support craft, which has two Ford 427 high-performance engines in it and pumping on jacuzzi pumps. They would do close to 50 knots over about three or four inches of water. And um, how many seals could fit in there and how many uh, boat guys? Well, there's usually two boat guys, possibly three, 
and we'd have a SEAL squad in there, seven guys. And the armament was the SEALs. I mean, they didn't have guns mounted on the LSSC, just the SEALs riding the boat for their armament. And what did most guys carry? Like, you had the stoner. What did everybody else have? Well, we had a, a variety of guns. You know, uh, uh, the M16, what they called a Car 15, which was typically uh, a short-barreled uh, version of the M16. And it would typically, they would mount a... Uh, 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 203 grenade launcher on that underneath that uh the pre the predecessor was called an xm 148 for uh, 40 millimeters but uh, uh that was the that was the two primary guns was the stoner and the and the cars and uh what did you eat when you were in vietnam what did i do what did you eat? What did I eat? Yes. More rice than I ever wanted to. <laughs> uh, it was, uh, took me years where I could even look at rice. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, the, you couldn't eat the, the food that the Vietnamese ate because they were, uh, you know, it was, it, there was no, there was no sanitation, whatever. You never know what you're going to get eating Vietnamese food, and uh, the the food at the at the uh, bases there at Ben Tui were was pretty good, but because we had Vietnamese troops there with us, they had to have rice every day. I mean, that was a staple, and then you could. You know, you got the regular stuff, ham, turkey, steak, hamburger, uh, you know, just general military food, but only supplemented by rice. Did you have any uh, beer? I interviewed a uh, Green Beret, and he had a beer uh, fridge. Yeah, I'm, I was not a beer drinker. I'm still not much of a beer drinker, but I can remember we had uh, cases or pallets of PBR, Pabst Blue Ribbon, and Schlitz uh, beer. And uh, because there was no refrigeration over there, the beer would sit out in the sun. They'd throw a canvas over the pallet of beer, but it would sit over the sun and uh, and get hot. And to keep it from spoiling, they would put formaldehyde in the beer, which to me smells exactly like a skunk. And uh, how anybody could drink it was beyond me. I did not, and I did not drink the local beer, which was called Bami Ba, which means thirty-three in Vietnamese. But if uh, if you wanted it cold, you had to put ice in it, and the ice was made with water out of the river. And if you hold the beer up after you put the ice in it, you could see bugs and stuff floating around in the beer. So uh, I I didn't drink much beer. Yeah, I don't blame you. <laughs> um, is there anything that you want to cover from Vietnam before we move on? Uh, well, uh, the, the, my experiences in Vietnam led me to set up, once I, once I got out of the Navy and went to, uh, 
got a degree from college, came back in, came back in and on an officer candidate program. Uh, I was determined to teach the SEAL team how to how to shoot well, and uh, so I set up all, all of our sniper school and our marksmanship courses, and also set up all of the the uh, what they call CQB close quarter battle uh, programs on the on the West Coast. And then ultimately they started duplicating some of the, uh, the situations I'd set up. They duplicated them on the East Coast uh, for SEAL Team 6. So, and now they now the sniper courses has graduated from being on the East and West Coast back to Camp Atterbury in uh, Indiana. So that was, that was teaching the SEALs how to shoot was my mission. But go before before we uh, go into that. So you go to college. Where did you go to college? Where did I go to college? Yeah, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And what did you study? I was actually a journalism major with a ag minor. Uh, well, I guess that's about, about all I, well, I was a major in. But uh, I was from a you know, from a cattle ranch. So, uh, I was interested in, in beef production and, and, uh, cattle methodologies, crop sciences, things like that. So, and when you, uh, when you left, uh, when you went to college, did you still remain in the reserves? I did. I think that's where I met, uh, uh, the guy you mentioned before, uh, uh, Kirby. Yeah. Kirby. And, uh, Harold well, Dunnigan. What's that? And Harold Dunnigan. Yeah. Dunnigan was in the reserve unit with me. Yeah. And then you become an officer. Uh, what year was that? 77. Do you know why they call, um, like former enlisted, then they become an officer, a Mustang? Do I know why they call an officer a Mustang? Yeah. Well, yeah, that's a, a Mustang officer is one who comes up, goes from enlisted, from chief petty officer to warrant officer, and then from warrant officer to commission officer, and that's a Mustang. But generally speaking, they consider people who are ex-enlisted uh, who who get their commission through OCS, they consider those Mustangs also, but that's not really officially what they call them because the, the Mustangs were, were generally, uh, you know, coming through the warrant officer program or some other program that got them their commission. I, I was a 31 year old ensign because of my time enlisted time before I before I got my commission so and uh, what year did you start the sniper program the sniper program uh, in the uh, 80s I'm not sure I think it was uh, 84 okay that's what it was. I was also working on weapons for the SEAL team that helped develop the 50 caliber sniper rifles 
uh, 300 wind mag, the soft offensive handgun, the AT-4. Uh, I was kind of the Naval Special Warfare representative on uh, weapons to like the JSAP committee, the Joint Services Small Arms Program uh, for weapons development and also for developing mounts for the boats, for the special boat units, how to mount, uh, get, keep guns on those. They had a hard time keeping guns mounted on the, on the boats because the recoil would shake them loose. So we were working on those kinds of problems. All right, before we go into those, uh, so coming officer in 1977, what, uh, did you go to UDT 12? I did. And what did you, what did you do, uh, when you were there? Well, I took a platoon to what they call Westpac. Uh, you know, we went, uh, we went from San Diego. We went with what's, what's, called an ARG, an amphibious ready group, uh, just abbreviated ARG. And uh, we went, you know, from uh, the Philippines to Korea to uh, uh, Australia, New Zealand, Fiji, basically all around the Western Pacific and then back to San Diego. Was that doing similar stuff that you did when you went to like... Same, same old stuff, you know, doing uh, doing beast reconnaissance and preparing for uh, uh, doing, you know, like demolition stuff. Had a blow coral for a beach landing and stuff like that, training for stuff like that. And did you do more tours while you were there? Did I do more what? Like an additional tour? Or did you go to a different, uh, like a newer unit after that? Uh, no, I just did that one tour. I was, I was, I was the weapons officer at UDT 12 before I took the platoon and I took the platoon and Upon completion of my my platoon, uh, Westpac crews, I uh, transferred to SEAL Team 1. And at SEAL Team 1, what did you do while you are there? Well, I, I worked with uh, a re- my regular SEAL platoon and uh, took a SEAL platoon uh, once again on a... On a uh, Westpac tour also took them to uh, took the platoon to uh, Sudan and did some work in Sudan, which I can't talk about. Uh, but uh, we went kind of. That's when CENTCOM was uh, getting started, getting heating up before the the actual war started, and uh, so we were over there kind of touching base with the people we were were expecting to be involved. Then I came back from those those cruises and uh, went to Australia as an exchange officer and did two years with the SAS. And 
How was that? How was that? Yeah. Great. Right? I mean, two years in Perth, Australia, you know, uh, we had the only nude beach <laughs> in Western Australia. So our morning beach runs were always pleasant. <laughs> um, was that so Australian SASR? Was right. it? Yeah. Was it what? SASR? I think that's how they. Yeah, yeah. SASR. That just stands for a regiment. Uh, Special Air Services Regiment. And uh, it was. Uh, it was uh, stationed at a at a place called Campbell Barracks, uh, which is just north of Fremantle. Uh, but uh, Swanbourne is the actual beach. <clears throat> when did was that a new thing to send seals to go on exchange, or was that happening? Uh, it, that had that had been happening for about well almost since Vietnam. Uh, we had been doing an exchange officer, one one officer and one enlisted exchange, and they would they would of course send a an officer and a warrant officer usually to uh, to Coronado to function with the SEAL team over there assigned to SEAL Team One. That all started happening before there was SEAL Team Three and SEAL Team Five. It was just SEAL Team Ones when the program started. And was that, uh, did you also do that with the British? Did I what? Was the exchange program also with the British? It is, but it's not with the SAS and the British. It's with the, on the British side, it's, it's the Royal Marines. Right. And then after SEAL Team 1, where'd you go? Uh... I went to uh, SEAL Team 5, uh, and from there, uh, I was operations officer at SEAL Team 5, and then I, I went from there to the uh, Admiral staff and was doing manuals on, uh, on weapons and sniper programs and platoon, uh, platoon commander directions. And, and then I, uh, I went on a uh, cruise as uh, what they call the uh, liaison officer, SEAL, Naval Special Warfare liaison officer with the MUSOC and uh, with a, a carrier battle group. And uh, uh, I went on the Peleliu and uh, we were... Uh, we were involved in going to the Gulf, and we, as as we approached the Philippines, Peleliu, uh, the Mount, uh, um, middle block here, uh, the uh, Pinatubo, Mount Pinatubo erupted. So we diverted to the Philippines to do a rescue of. Navy personnel off of off the Philippines, and uh, we've we uh, ferried people. You could not fly into Manila because of the ash from the volcano, so we ferried people down to Cebu and 
flew them back to the states and after we completed that uh that uh mission there we headed on headed on around the io to uh the gulf and we uh we did a desert storm tour in the gulf had two seal platoons and a and a EOD platoon that I was directing over there. Can you discuss maybe like what you did when you were there? Uh, it was totally administrative. I mean, uh, uh, you know, we organized different things. Uh, you know, like we had a helo go down. I organized a, a dive to go recover the bodies and uh, stuff like that. But, uh, there was, there was, uh, uh, not any particular, um, you know, the, the war had pretty much had trailed off by then. And, uh, we, uh, we were doing like surveys of damage and, uh, the, the, uh, um, Iraqis had mined all the beaches around Kuwait City, so we were we were doing underwater surveys to see if we could locate any any mines out there, which we did find a few, and then uh, we tagged them out for EOD to come and dispose of. And are you using like a like a scuba rig for that, or are you breath hold? Yeah, we were we were just free diving. I mean, it's perfectly clear water over there, so uh, you know we would just uh, drop a buoy on it if we if we saw anything. And was that with SEAL Team Five? No, that was that uh, uh, was I was I was attached to the Pelalu uh, as a as a, what they called an ARG liaison, uh, amphibious ready group liaison officer. And what do you do after that? Uh, I, I took orders to uh, Fallon, Nevada, where I worked on, uh, still working on sniper rifle programs and also working on uh, laser bombing, laser beacon bombing devices. We had a, uh, a special laser thing that was uh, kind of a prototype uh, that was much refined later on to uh, put a laser, direct laser beam on energy onto a target so they could pick them up from the air and uh, put precision bombs, you know, guided bombs onto the target and uh that's where i i retired out of that out of that billet there in 95 uh going back to the um the sniper stuff um can you talk about like did you like set up a course like how did that um how did that go about well we we we're piggybacking on the Marine Corps uh, sniper course out of Camp Pendleton, two, two students at a time. We'd send two SEALs up there, two at a time, and then that got to be uh, 
uh, overwhelming for the Marine Corps. So we set up our own sniper course. They let us build a range uh, on Pendleton. Uh, I wanted a range to go to 1,200 yards. The Marines range only went to 600 yards. So we built a new range that went to 1,200 yards so that we could shoot our 50s out out to 1,200 yards. And uh, so we built a, a range, what they call range 116. And we uh, set up our uh, sniper courses for our 300 wind mags and our, our 50 caliber sniper rifles. And uh, then we also built a kill house uh, out at uh, Nyland, and uh, we did uh, close quarter battle training uh, out at Nyland, California, at, uh, at our base on the Coachella Canal, and out in the, in the bombing range at, at Nyland. When did the SEAL team start using the 300 wind mag and the 50 cal sniper? I was in the early 80s. And did you uh, like help develop those weapons? I did. I, I helped develop both of them. I, uh, I had my own uh, uh, beliefs on, on what the the weapon needed to do and what caliber it needed to be. And, uh, so I, they said they would send me to developers like our first 300 wind mags were, uh, McMillan's, uh, McMillan barreled McMillan actions and McMillan glass stocks. Well, they soon priced themselves out of competition and we, we were buying precision barreled, 700s rebarreled 700 and putting them in mcmillan stocks and then later on uh brown stocks and uh, uh we've gone through several uh several iterations of various stocks but as you may be aware that you know when when you say you want uh a stock for a sniper rifle. You can't say, I want a McMillan stock. You've got to say what the stock specs are and let everybody bid for it. So, uh, that's the way that all works. But you know, the, 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 uh, basic rifle, uh, requirements have remained the same in that it is not a standard Sammy 300 wind mag. It's a 300 long throat, which takes a longer action. So that you can seat the 190 and 220 grain bullets out farther in the neck of the case and uh, get more velocity on it. Our uh, our 300 wind mags with a 190 bullet were were uh, exceeding velocities of 3,100 feet per second. So uh, that's significantly higher velocity you can get out of a Sammy 300 wind mag. You said you had your own opinions of why uh, you needed to develop the 300 Win Mag and the 50 Cal. What were what were some of your thoughts about that? Well, uh, the uh, the rest of the military, i.e., the Marine Corps and the Army, that has anything to do with sniper rifles, said that they were happy with the 308. They wanted to stay with a 7.62, and we wanted something bigger and. Uh, 
by the time we developed the 50 caliber sniper rifle and the, the 300 wind mag sniper rifle, the army finally got on board. And uh, then they said they wanted uh, one gun that would do everything that, that the 50 caliber sniper rifle and uh, 300 wind mag would do. And they had determined that to be the 338 Lapua. Uh, so the 338 Lapua had, we had experimented with that cartridge, in fact, developed that cartridge, and we couldn't get Sierra to make bullets for us, so we went to Lapua and had them make bullets for uh, what we called a 338 416, and then uh, we gave up on that because we could not exceed the parameters that we were able to get accuracy wise with the 50 caliber so we abandoned that project and of course lapua stayed with it and developed the 338 lapua and we stayed in the navy we stayed with the 300 wind mags and the 50 caliber rifles the army bought the 338 lapuas and you also mentioned that um you developed like a CQB course. Was that uh, like using your past experiences in Vietnam? Yeah, experiences and and weapons. It was it was you know designed to test uh, both uh, uh, our sub guns, the MP5, and uh, the uh, handgun that we're that we were currently uh, on at that point in time was was the SIG. I don't know what they're on now, but uh, they were they were going through the CQB drills with the SIGs and the MP5s and 9mm. Uh, I, uh, you know, even when I deployed over to Desert Storm, I still carried my 1911. You know, I was, I was not restricted to carrying the team gun and, and uh, my 1911s were built by a custom gunsmith guy named Armin Swenson. And uh, so my guns were uh, far superior to anything that you could buy off the, the shelf. We also developed a gun by H&K called the Soft Offensive Handgun, which was a high-tech 45. But by the time the engineers got all of the uh, devices put on that gun, and uh, put the requirements on it for longevity without a malfunction or a broken part. The thing was so big and heavy, it, it never got used. Uh, we still got that soft offensive handgun in the systems called a Mark 23, but nobody uses it. So it's almost as big as a MP5. <laughs> and uh, you also said you helped develop the AT4 rocket launcher? Yeah, the AT-4, uh, actually what I wanted was the 84-millimeter Carl Gustav, which is a reloadable version of the 84-millimeter rocket launcher. And uh, we uh, we tested those for the for Sweden over here. They, they claim that the uh, max uh, range on the AT-4 was about 700 meters and i put my snipers on the on the gun with uh with the scopes and uh 
and we were able to hit uh, vehicles at 1,200 meters with it. So uh, the the weapon was being limited by the by the ability of the shooter. You got a good shooter on that weapon; it far exceeds the the stated uh, range of it. And are you like uh, mo- like most proud of your contributions um, with the sniper courses, or what are your thoughts about your career? Well, <clears throat> we all have our uh, things that we'd like to think we contributed. I when I came to the SEAL team, uh, the mentality was you only shot full auto and you carried enough ammo so that you'd never run out. And I, uh, my concept was that uh, uh, if you're a SEAL, you can't afford to waste any rounds. You can't carry enough ammo for a prolonged uh, firefight, so you better hit something every time you pull the trigger. So uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, Navy uh, or the military uh, classification of distinguished master but there is a military program uh in competitive shooting for rifle and pistol that's that's called a distinguished program and these these uh points that you earn and badges you earn toward becoming distinguished uh you can only earn at fleet level all navy level and inter-service level and national championship competitions. So uh, it irked me that I was the only SEAL who was distinguished with both the rifle and the pistol. So I made it my uh, goal to uh, to get SEALs trained up as competitive marksmen and demonstrate that, you know, as they should be, SEALs were the best shots in the military. and. I think there's probably 14 SEALs now that are distinguished. I don't know how many more are distinguished since since I've uh, left the program. But uh, but uh, there were I was right that that you know we had the most physically capable people, best eyesight. And there's no reason they shouldn't be the best shots in the Navy. So that's what I set out to do was train them up to do that. And then, uh, what? When did you go to um, Warcom? Uh, Warcom in uh, the late '80s. So that was at the same time that you were doing all the uh, weapons development. Yeah, I was doing weapons development all along that whole time. I continued on. I continued doing weapons development all the way up through the time I was in Fallon. And uh, and then you said you retired out of that? I did. I retired in 95. As a, what was your rank? Commander. After 32 years? Yep. Um, and then what did you do when you uh, retired? How old were you at that time? 50. Retired at 50, and then what have you been up to 
and uh, you said you're 77 now. So in, the, yeah. in 27 years, what, what have you been uh, up to? Well, you know, I I maintain ties with uh, the weapons development programs with Crane, and uh, I don't know. You can, you can figure out what the I say 50 years. I was I don't even I don't even know how old I was when I retired in '95, but from 1945 to 1995, you figure it out. <laughs> but, uh, uh, anyway, uh, uh, yeah, I, I continued as a contractor, uh, working on weapons development stuff. Uh, all of the, uh, the, uh, gadgets for like the M4, the, the lasers, the lights, the scopes, the night vision stuff, the, uh, all of that stuff you know i was working on those programs did, and the sniper rifles also did you uh still uh compete in competitive shooting do i still or did i still both i don't anymore but i did i did back then as a, as a retiree i could still go shoot competition matches and uh i kind of uh i was uh interested more in the pistol competitions like ipsic and uh i had uh i was an a-class international ipsic shooter and, and uh i i kind of as i i got up into my more senior years i kind of lost interest in competing in in action pistol shooting and I got more into single shot rifles and what they call shoots and matches and uh, also long range uh, uh, black powder cartridge rifle matches like the Quigley match and, and uh, so uh, if I was if I compete now it's in shoots and or or uh, black powder cartridge rifle competition What's your favorite weapon that you have ever shot? Well, I'm a Model 70 fan, Winchester Model 70 fan. That's what all my competition long-range rifles are built on Model 70 Winchesters. And, uh, you know, despite the fact that numerous, uh, uh, quote, advancements have, have come down the line, uh, there's still in my opinion, no gun that will outshoot them pre-64 Model 70 if properly built and barreled. And I still shoot competition with a, a 1911. My Swenson combat guns are what I use if I'm going to shoot like an Ipsic-style plate match or speed match. Um, is there anything that I haven't asked you that uh, you'd like to cover? Well, uh, you know, you kind of asked me what did I think my accomplishments were. Uh, uh, you know, the the jobs that the uh, that the snipers in particular were doing in uh, in Kuwait, in Kuwait, and Afghanistan, and and uh, you know, wherever they are, Spec War developed some pretty good uh, pretty good sniper teams and. Uh, I was kind of I was kind of the grandfather of that whole program. I'm pretty proud of them. 
that's pretty awesome and uh i know like uh it's really cool being able to speak to you and hear your uh career and then all your um you know your contributions to like i know like a lot of uh i told you i'm not like super knowledgeable about uh weapons and stuff but i know a lot about operations and uh, i have a lot of friends who are currently either in the seal teams or they uh have since retired but i think your contributions are definitely something to be proud of and um i know when they listen to this um you know they're gonna be very grateful well appreciate it 